There's this thing that tends to happen with a lot of copywriters, not all of us, but many, where they ultimately decide that they don't want to work with clients anymore. And at that point, they create their own products instead of helping other people sell their products. Sounds easy, right? But if it were easy, everyone would be doing it. Today's guest on the 205th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Justin Goff. Just after the worst week of his life, Justin created his first product and earned a little over $100,000 in three months. And then he did it again, earning millions. If that sounds like something that you'd like to do in your own business, then this episode is for you. We'll share Justin's story in just a minute. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground, a private membership and community designed to help you hit your business growth goals faster. Whether your goal is hitting 10K a month or launching a new service or product, or even just finding your first few clients, the resources in the underground can help with accountability, support, coaching, and a path to help you get out of your own way and build momentum in your business. Find out more at thecopywriterunderground.com. There are a lot of ways to succeed as a copywriter. Working directly with clients is one, and creating your own products is another. Let's jump into our interview with Justin and hear how he has used copywriting to create his million-dollar business. I initially got into kind of making websites when I was in college as the result of, I had a $1,200 gambling debt when I was in college. Um, I was probably like 20 at the time. And so I was a really good like sports better in college. I'd bet on college football games, college basketball games. I would make good money doing it. And then like a lot of kids my age, I got really cocky and thought I was better than I was and um, ended up betting a lot more money than I had. And uh, one weekend, I basically had like the weekend from hell where I lost like seven or eight of the games I bet on. I went, I basically went from being up like $5,000 on the season to down $1,200. And this the guy who I bet through it was this big bookie who was like six foot eight named Gabe who weighed like 280 pounds uh and Gabe wanted his money like two days later um <laughs> and I did not have that kind of money it sounds so. like it sounds like a movie yeah it's, 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 for sure <laughs> it's like rounders part two um so yeah, I owed this guy a bunch of money and um I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna pay him and I had this bright idea that I could make a website and sell my sports picks. Uh, I knew nothing about making a website, knew nothing about selling stuff, but I'd seen other people doing it online. I'm like, all right, I could do this. Um, long story short, that basically about six months of that, just pounding my head against the wall and spamming forums and trying to figure out how to make, sell these picks. Nothing ever worked. Uh, and then about six months at, later, I finally, uh, it was around Christmas time, I remember, because I was at my parents' house for Christmas break. And um, I got on my email account and I noticed I had a PayPal notification. And I remember opening it up and seeing that someone had spent $149 to buy one of the pick packages I was selling. I remember just going like absolutely crazy. I was like jumping up and down, screaming, running around the room. Uh, it's funny because I've, I've had like days where I've done $200,000, $300,000 since then in sales. And I still remember more about that that day and that $149 sale than anything. Um, because that, that was kind of the first time it, it became real to me. Uh, cause kind of up until then, it just seemed like this pipe dream. Um, 
So that's kind of what got me into it. And I kind of weaseled my way into affiliate marketing after that and kind of learned the ropes of that. Um, so I did that for a few years and then basically around 2009 or so. Uh, so I was doing affiliate marketing for a bunch of poker websites and gambling sites. And then all that fell, fell apart in like 08, 09, because uh, there was a law that was passed that you couldn't play poker online anymore in the United States. And I decided to get into fitness, health, info product stuff. I'd seen all these people making info products and selling them. I was like, oh, let's do that. I, I, I kind of recently had gotten into like the CrossFit and Paleo stuff. And this was kind of before uh, it had really blown up and really gotten big. And I was like, oh, there's probably a big market for this uh, for people who don't really understand this. So I started creating a product around that. And that's the first time I kind of really learned about copywriting. Um, cause I, I tried for about a year and a half to do this on my own, selling it with like a super boring sales page that was just like features and benefits and almost like an e-com style page and nobody was buying anything. And my business partner at the time, who was the personal trainer, who was kind of the face of the product, he had been using direct response on his, uh, gym that he ran and he kind of kept telling me about direct response and I was just very closed off to it. And finally, he gave me this big box of Dan Kennedy tapes. And he's like, just watch this. He's like, I think it'll change your mind. And I finally plopped in one of his copywriting DVDs. It was like nine hours unedited Dan Kennedy. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was just like, my world had kind of been like shattered. I was like, oh my God, now I see what he meant. Now I understand why these ugly ass websites with yellow highlighter and 40 page sales letters work so well. Um, and that, that was kind of the first foray into copywriting. Okay. So I want to know about Gabe. You, like, did, <laughs> did you pay, pay Gabe or yeah. did like you get beat up by Gabe? What happened with Gabe? No. So basically after about three days of that, I had to make an emergency decision to get a job as quick as possible. And, uh, I started valeting cars literally like two days after this and worked out a payment plan with Gabe, uh, to pay him back over the next two weeks. So no, I did not get my legs broken. Um, okay. okay. On that one. <laughs> It'd be a good story though, if you did, but I'm glad you didn't. So what are some lessons from your time gambling? I didn't realize because I hadn't heard that part of your story before. Um, what have you learned from gambling that has helped you in, in life and business? So the interesting thing to me is actually when I got into more business stuff, the kind of rush that I got from gambling stuff was very, very similar, except it's in a much more controlled environment now. So like when I would do big media buys and spend $20,000 on an email drop um, and it would come back and we'd make, let's say $30,000. Like I, I got that same kind of excitement and that same rush, but I had 10 times the control over it uh, compared to gambling where it's like, you're kind of just looking for these slight edges all the time. And um, one of the things, honestly, that, re that really turned me away from it, because I was actually pretty good at it, was uh, the stress of it was just way too much. Um, and, and in a way, like your business can be the same way, especially if you get to the point where you're just the absolute workaholic who's working 12 hours a day and nothing else in your life matters. Uh, that's kind of the point I got to with, like I treated the gambling like, it was a real job. I mean, I was like studying stuff and creating all these models and uh, putting 30, 40 hours a week into it while I was, <laughs> while I was like a full-time student. Um, 
but I mean, the de dedication definitely pays off because it helped me in that. And then it obviously helped me in copywriting as well. Uh, because those first couple of years that I was learning to write copy, I was doing the same thing where I was just over and over and over and over again, uh, writing, 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 getting the reps in, which it's kind of one of those things that like every copywriter <laughs> is always kind of looking for a workaround. Like, how do I not have to write to be a good copywriter? <laughs> um, but it's kind of like the one thing where it's like, if I could tell you one thing to be a better copywriter, it's you need to write every single day. So I'm curious, like, what's the what's next in the story? So you discovered Dan Kennedy, you had these first uh, assignments, and then what? How did you find additional clients at that point in your uh, career journey? Yeah, so I had gone to a couple of events back then and met some people who um, I emailed them out of the blue, and, and I started doing some freelance stuff. And th this was at the time when freelance wise I, I was not charging very much maybe 500 to a thousand dollars maybe 1500 bucks for like a full sales page and i helped a bunch of people uh get some sales pages that actually worked and i got i got a little bit of like i said a little bit of experience doing that because I, I did it for a good number of clients at the time uh so while the pay pay wasn't great the the experience i got out of it really was um but then I kind of had the idea that I wanted to create my own offer. Um, and I, I had been thinking of that for a while. I kind of saw that's what I really wanted to do. Cause I saw that, like I said, I saw this huge hole in the market where I thought the paleo diet could do really, really well. And th like, like I said, this is like 2009, 10 ish before paleo really blew up. Um, and I was like, I think this could do really well. So I created a course back, back then. What's interesting, I kind of fell into this spot of being just really content. Like I was making decent money. I had a couple of clients who I was doing miscellaneous stuff for. Like I had a freelance client. I had one that I uh, actually used to be really good at SEO stuff. So I, I did SEO for another client. And I was kind of just like content and happy and I was making however much money I was making. Um, but then a lot of it pretty much all fell apart. So um, basically within the span of like a week, uh, I call this my, <laughs> this was literally my week from hell. Um, my consulting client, my biggest consulting client who made up like about 80 to 90% of my income fired me. Um, so I was like freaking out. I had no idea how I was going to make, make up the money to, uh, to get that back. Um, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time who I was living with and like planning on uh, proposing to came home from work one night and decided she didn't want to be with me. So she broke up with me and Literally that same night after that, she, um, sorry, not she, um, LeBron James, this is the night he decided to go on national TV and say he was like leaving Cleveland and going to Miami. And I, I grew up like right next to Cle near Cleveland. So I was a huge, huge Cavs fan. So got my heart broken twice in one night, uh, lost all of my income. Like I said, this is basically in a week span. It was actually probably like a three day span. So I was like a total wreck trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life, how I was going to make money. Um, and it was interesting cause I was really, really doubting myself, uh, as an entrepreneur, I, I did not, I think I had maybe like a month's worth of money left. Uh, I considered like moving back in with my parents. Uh, I considered going and getting a real job. I had a, one of my aunts runs like an e-com company and I talked to her about maybe going and working for her. Um, but yeah, I also thought about like just quitting the whole thing and going off and just getting a normal job and moving in with my parents and kind of forgetting all of this, which is pretty crazy now to look back on. Um, but basically I, I kept thinking though, that I had this offer and I was like, if I could just, I, I want to just try it. I want to test it. I want to 
get it up, run some ads to it and just test it and see if there's anything there. I've never actually done this before. I have no idea if it's going to work. Uh, so I wrote the copy for this product, put up a VSL and this was like super simple. Like it was like a landing page, a VSL. And I don't even think I had upsells at the time, created some Facebook ads, started running into it. And interestingly, after like a week of it, it started making some sales. And I mean, I'm only spending like $10 a day cause I, I have no money at this time. And it started making some sales though. Like it would make like one sale for every 60 bucks I spent or something. And I was like, oh, if I actually like dial this in and maybe get some upsells and get the average order value up, this, this might actually work. And so over the course of about two months or so, I really like focused on dialing it in. And I went from spending 10 bucks a day uh, to 50 bucks a day to 100, up to 500 to 1,000. Then eventually I literally maxed out my Facebook account where I was spending $5,000 a day. And this thing was like profitable on the front end, which doesn't happen very often. Um, but I mean, I, I, at its peak, I was spending like five grand a day and I was making like two grand a day profit. And it was pretty cool because like in that basically like a three, three and a half month stretch, I went from being a month away from being dead broke uh, and not having any money to basically making, I think it was like $103,000 in profit is what I ended up making in those three months. Um, and that offer went on to do really well that year. I think we brought in like 40,000 new customers by the end of the year. Uh, it was one of my, the first years I think I ever made over $200,000. Uh, so it was a huge year for me financially. It got me out of this kind of hole that I was in. And then it also, it really gave me the confidence to know that I could actually do this. Cause like I said, I, I was really doubting myself as an entrepreneur and like, kind of just thinking I got lucky a couple of years before this. I, I didn't realize I actually did know what the hell I was doing. And uh, when that offer kind of kicked off and started working, that was, that was the first kind of real proof to me that I actually could do this. Uh, I'd like to talk about the week from hell. <laughs> what I mean, it was just a bad time when you, when you look back on it. Well, I guess the question is if someone else listening is going through the week from hell, um, what advice would you give them based off your experience? For me, it was brutal. Like I was living in a $250 a month apartment. The girlfriend that I had lived with, I, <laughs> after she moved out, I helped her move everything out. There was literally nothing left in the house because pretty much everything was hers. Um, I was sleeping on a blow up mattress in the middle of the living room. It was basically me and my two dogs and, and nothing else. So yeah, it was a pretty bad time for me. I was pretty depressed. Didn't want to hang out with anybody. Just kind of like shut myself in and just locked myself in my room. Um, but one of the good things about pain is that that's really where growth comes from. Um, and so I was kind of in that spot where I, like I said, didn't really have a whole lot of options, uh, which forced me to kind of get off my ass and put out this offer that I'd been pretty much procrastinating on. Like the offer could have been put out six months before this, but I was just kind of being content and um, not really pushing myself. So there is a lot of good, like I said, that can come out of the bad spots. And, and truthfully, truthfully, a lot of the biggest wins in my, in my life have come right after really bad spots. Um, I remember in like 2014, our, when, I, when I kind of combined my Patriot Health Alliance company with uh, my partner, Alan, at the time, kind of right off the bat, not, nothing we were doing was working. Um, I mean, we were kind of getting to the point where he was like, we need to get something working here now. Or like this, 
we're going to like shut this down because this is just, we're just wasting money. Um, and literally right after that, probably a month after that, our Patriot Power Greens offer took off and that basically catapulted that business from a million dollar business to like a $23 million business in less than three years. So that's the one thing I would definitely say is that, um, like I said, the growth does come from pain. And so out of a lot of the really bad scenarios where you think this is never going to end, this can't get any better. Um, a lot of good stuff can come out of that. A lot of good stuff can happen to you. Yeah. I really like, I mean, it's kind of a sliding door moment, right? That movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, you miss the train, you make the train and it makes all the difference. Uh, you know, you, you could have been working a $60,000 corporate job, you know, to this day and not have had all of the experiences that you've had over the last eight years. So it's, it's pretty amazing what. Rob, that Rob that's so weird. I was thinking about that movie today. <laughs> I was thinking about that exact movie and how I want it. I want to watch that movie this weekend today. There you go. Two lives two chances, and a destiny that lies behind two sliding doors. We're insane. There you go. Weird. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So, so Justin, will you talk a little bit about what you did with Patriot Greens? Because I'm really intrigued by that story. You know, when you've got something that's not working and it's not working, you're trying and you're trying, and then something pops. Like, I'm, I'm actually less intrigued by the one thing that you did that worked, but the process of trying more and more things to find the thing that would work. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So kind of what we did when we were starting. So we, we had probably three or four products uh, when we were starting and we were trying to, we were doing lots of paid email drops. Cause that's what was working for us at the time. And I, the, the offers that we were doing just weren't hitting the numbers that they needed to hit. Uh, we were trying all kinds of different copy and different angles and promoting them in bundles and promoting them solo and, it wasn't hitting the numbers we needed. Um, and this is kind of when I, I got, I get a lot of direct mail cause I'm on a ton of different lists and I kept seeing this direct mail piece for a green supplement. Um, now to give some people some context, there's millions of green supplements. Now this is like in 2014, they had not hit the internet really yet. There was maybe, I think athletic greens was maybe the only one that was really around. Uh, but there was one working in direct mail that I kept getting over and over and over again. Anytime I like ordered something or signed up to a new list, I got this thing in the mail. So I was like, all right, it's, it's obviously working because I just keep sending this thing nonstop. And I really liked the angle on it. I was like, well, let's, let's make a similar product to this, except let's find a better hook for our audience, which our audience at the time was um, pretty much the 65 to 80 year old kind of conservative health market. So people who are reading, Glenn Beck's email list and Newsmax and stuff like that was kind of our market. I was like, let's figure out a little angle that we can do to, to really appeal to them. And one of the things that was really interesting is like, I'm a big watcher of what's working and what's working for other offers. So I'd seen, there was an offer, like, I think around that time that Newsmax put out, um, that was called the biblical money code. It was one of the first ones to really tap into the fact that that audience is super, super religious. And if you could tie this way to make money in with the Bible, like people buy it. And that offer was just like a huge smash hit. So I kind of thought of it just from the perspective of the people buying it. I'm like, what's the angle that nobody's really hit on with them yet? Um, there was a really popular offer at that time as well that uh, dove into like uh, Ronald Reagan and tied in like Alzheimer's disease and all kinds of stuff. It was a health promotion. And that one did really well too. So I'm like, all right, they're hitting on these popular topics that, 
uh, your average 65 year old conservative person is really kind of passionate about what, what's the thing that's not really being said. And I was like, nobody's really talking about the military and they have such a huge affinity for the military that I feel like if the military was using some type of product, like they would just buy it because they have such a love for the military. So that was kind of the idea that came to my head when I first thought of it. And so we created this greens powder. And the first thing we did was uh, we shipped like a whole container of it to my cousin who was in the Coast Guard at the time. And I was like, here, uh, have everybody in your unit try this. Uh, give, we want to get some like feedback from you. And I can't remember how many guys it was. There's, I don't know, 20 or so of them. They all tried it, sent us a bunch of feedback. And the one guy who was one of the older guys in their unit, because uh, obviously like the military is mostly young dudes. There was one guy who was like pretty old. I can't remember exactly how old he was, but he was one of the older guys in the unit. And he mentioned in his feedback that um, he was keeping up with the younger guys for like the first time in a while. He's like, I got more energy. He's like, my PT tests are, are doing a lot better. And uh, he's like, I'm actually keeping up with and kind of beating the younger guys. Uh, and I remember when I read that, I was like, just kind of like light bulb moment. I was like, Oh, that's the hook. Uh, this kind of secret greens drink that uh, elite military units are using, uh, older guys in elite military units are using to keep up with the younger guys in their unit. And it was just that one little nugget that kind of spurred the whole thing where, and I I wrote the whole sales page, uh, with a lot of emotional stories about that. The emails were about that. And, uh, the first time we promoted it actually, the email, first email creative I promoted did not do well. We tried it on a couple of lists, did not do well. Uh, and then the next one we did absolutely hit a home run where I think we spent like $3,000 on the email buy and we brought back like $15,000 on day one. And I remember looking at the stats, I was like, something's got to be broken. Like this, just, <laughs> this just doesn't happen. Um, and then the next day we had another email buy go out where that was like for $4,000 and that brought back like $18,000. And I remember just thinking, holy shit, like we absolutely hit a home run here. Um, and that was kind of the thing though that started it off because we had a really good hook. It was super unique. Uh, it was like I said, it was a product that green spotters are everywhere now, but 2014, it was a new idea and a new product, especially to that market. And uh, yeah, that thing just, we ramped it up from, like I said, we were doing about a million in sales with that company. And then the next year we did close to seven. And then the year after that, we took a really big leap up to about 23 million. Wow. Okay. So talking about the unique hook for offers, I mean, you walked through some of the process with that example, but when you're working for clients and looking at their offers and thinking about hooks for them and then for your other offers, is there a certain process that we could follow as copywriters for our own offers or for our clients offers? I mean, to me, the biggest thing is really truly knowing the market and not just, so you have to know the market and you have to know the people in that market. It's probably the biggest mistake I see copywriters make is because they, they'll come up with an idea. And if I'm someone who's studied a lot of stuff in that market, I can see very quickly if this is an idea that's already been seen uh, or not. Like if you're, I don't know, if you come up with some thing for a turmeric product and you're telling the story about um, why people in India have less uh, brain damage because they eat all kinds of curcumin. I, like I've seen that four times already. It's I've seen it over and over and over again. Uh, so it's not going to stick out. It's not, it's not a unique angle. Um, the unique story, the unique affinity that really appeals to 
who the customer is, is the first thing I really think of. So, and it, you can kind of reverse engineer it. So like with the Patriot Power Greens one, like it wasn't like that, that wasn't a hook that was embedded within the product or like if you were doing research on the product, you weren't going to find that. It was one I actually just created uh, because I knew it would probably work for that market. But that's that's really the power of understanding your market because if you truly know what they want, what they hate, stuff like that, all the emotional stuff around that, you can kind of come up with your own hook and your own story um, and do it that way instead of having to find one within the research. Let's talk a bit more about this whole idea of the big idea. We've talked about it before with Joe Schrieffer way back on episode 70, as well as with others, but it's probably worth taking a moment to point out what exactly makes a big idea. Rob, what do you think makes a big idea? I knew you were going to ask me this. So this is, this is something that we actually covered in a newsletter that went out to the underground this last month. We talked all about the big idea and we actually outlined, I think like 13 different things that go into it. And depending on who you ask, it really depends. So uh, if you were to ask David Ogilvy, he would say that there were five things went into a big idea. Um, I think Todd Brown has a list of seven or eight. Our list went to 13 just because we were able to um, build on some of the things that they suggested. But I would say like a big idea has got to be unique. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's completely different from everything else that's out there, but it's something that your prospect has not ever seen before or encountered before. It's got to be uh, fascinating enough to hold your attention because you're really competing against everything, not just other you know, sales pieces or advertisements or you know, content, but you're competing against people watching Netflix. You're competing against people going to you know, the, the baseball game or you know, sitting, you know, when we can't go anywhere, you know, sitting at home you know, with a, a glass of wine or um, doing nothing, right? So you're competing against all of those things. And another thing I'll point out um, among the, the many is that it tells a story. And Justin was talking about that. You know, if you can connect with stories, it's a way that we hold attention. It creates curiosity. It's a really good way to um, make sure that your idea is big enough to carry through an entire sales page or even through a campaign that may last for months or years. A big idea really is something that hasn't been seen or done before. And it's so hard to find that and figure that out. And what really stood out to me, what Justin shared is that you, you need to know your market well before even coming up with a big idea, before writing any copy, you have to understand your market. And I think it's easy to think that we do, you know, we've done a couple of customer interviews, maybe we've done our survey for our clients. And so we think that we know the market well, but what was really clear to me as he talked through it is that it takes an in-depth, intimate, intimate knowledge of your market. And so when I think of that, I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's where most of us struggle because oftentimes if we're working on a project with a client and it's only a month long or even two months long, um, we do surface level research and um, we don't have that really close understanding and in-depth understanding of the market. And so what really re reminded me of was back in TCC IRL 2018, back in the day, in downtown uh, Manhattan and Chinatown, I remember Brian Kurtz stood up, our, one of our mentors, Brian Kurtz stood up and talked about how he thought um, that the future of copywriting involved working 
really closely with your clients. I mean, even in-house potentially, but having maybe fewer clients and working with them for longer periods of time and going more in depth with them. And I don't remember what your reaction was, but I know at the time my reaction was like, no way. I want to work with clients for a month. And then I want to say, see you later. And I don't want to see them again, even if they're cool. Like I'm in and out. I want to do my job. I don't want to work long-term because that's why we left um, jo our job. That's why we got out of corporate America or wherever we came from. And so why would I want to work closely with any type of client and have more of an employee role uh, long-term? But now, a couple of years later, it only took me a couple of years later to understand what Brian was really saying, that in order to come up with these really brilliant big ideas, sometimes it does take um, maybe even a longer term relationship with clients. And so I am personally looking at my relationship with uh, my copywriting clients in a different way, where I'm setting up offers now where I work with them long term to have a deeper understanding of their market so that I can come up with better ideas and better hooks. Because um, at least for me, I've struggled to find them in short periods of time. So I think Brian was right, maybe, even though I, I was definitely <laughs> adamant that he wasn't right at the time. If Brian's listening to this, he'll be smiling right now. Um, let me add one other thing that I think Justin did really well with his big idea, and that is that it connected with his customer's pain. You know, the, the pain of this older guy trying to keep up with the younger guy. There's a, a pride factor there, um, but it's it's something that's deeply felt and emotional. And obviously that big idea had that going for it. And I think with a lot of the ideas that we need to come up with for our clients, they need to tap into that pain, that problem that we're trying to solve and that ultimately our solution will fix for them. And so again, the idea that Justin had was phenomenal. Okay, so let's go back to our discussion with Justin and talk about one of the smartest decisions he ever made in his business. So Justin, one of the things that I think is unique about this story, or at least your experience with Patriot Greens, is that you were a partner in the company. And a lot of copywriters don't actually take uh, the opportunity to become a partner or to partner with somebody who has a product. Will you tell us a little bit about how that came about and Ultimately, the result is you you sold off your partnership, but uh, how did you you know forge that in the first place? Yeah, so I started the company um, actually with a partner. Uh, his name is Brandon Kelly. He was a really good media buyer uh, who had, had a lot of success in the survival space. And me and him started it. We grew it to that first kind of million. Um, and then after about a year, um, my future partner, Alan Baylor, came to me and said he wanted to, he actually wanted to buy the company and he wanted me to come work for him. And I remember like laughing and I was like really, really put off by the email. And I was <laughs> like, I'm pretty pissed off. I remember just being like, you, I'm not coming to work for you. <laughs> um, but like three days later, I remember thinking, I was like, why don't I just like partner with Alan? Cause Alan, we hadn't known each other for a couple of years and I knew he had a lot of success scaling businesses already. I was like, well, why don't I chat with him about being partners? And so we chatted for a little bit and uh, he was like, okay. He's like, yeah, I think that'll work. We basically worked out an agreement where, um, I forget our exact percentage. He got, he got a little more of the company than I did uh, since he was fronting a bunch of the money. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. And the cool thing there is, and I, I learned a lot about partnerships through this. So like me and Brandon, uh, we're actually not good partners in the sense that um, 
we neither of us knew anything about operations and growing a company. Uh, so like I was really good at marketing and copy. Brandon was really good at traffic, which are two skills you need, but you also need someone who's really damn good at operations and actually infrastructure and all that kinds of stuff, which is what Alan brought to the table in spades. Like Alan had previous success scaling an offer that had done, I think like 300,000 customers in a year. So he knew what the hell he was doing. Um, and he had a real legit infrastructure and a team around him already, uh, which we, we used for this company. So that, that was a huge thing for me, just kind of seeing, um, uh, all that goes into scaling. Cause I had done this probably three times previously where I'd scale a company to like a million bucks, 2 million bucks or something. I would just hit this wall because I had no idea what to do next. Um, I had no idea how to hire people, nor did I actually want to hire anyone. Um, I, I realized like I was just really good at making sales, but I wasn't actually any good at running a business. But that partnership really allowed me to do that. Uh, and something I actually encourage a lot of copywriters to do. Once you get to a certain level, um, if you're really good at writing copy and creating products and doing the marketing angle, there's a lot of people out there that you can find who are really good at the other parts that your strengths and uh, your weaknesses will mesh really well together. Uh, and th that's probably the best way outside of like royalties to really make a lot more money without doing more work. Okay. So this is, I mean, more of a selfish question because Rob and I are partners. So what advice do you have for business partners to, I mean, you mentioned like what you should look for, um, but once you're in a partnership, what advice do you have from your experience with Brandon and with Alan to, to make it work, to make it successful so that you can grow, I mean, grow to, even close to the point that you made it with $23 million? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things I look for in partners now will be, um, the first one is A, you just have to get along. If you're, if you're on two totally different wavelengths in terms of how you handle problems and issues, like I'm, I'm the type, like I could never work with someone who is texting me at 11 o'clock at night that this needs to be done and this needs to be done. And we got to have this ready by seven. Like that's just not how I work. And that would be kind of doomed from the get go. Um, I also, I would have a really hard time working with anyone who um, is, is a control freak and can't kind of let things go. Cause like, if you're like the ultimate perfectionist and you have to have control of everything and you can't give and take on certain things, uh, that partnership is never going to work. Um, I, I mean, I've luckily had really good partners for most of my, most of my career. My, my first one with, uh, the personal trainer was probably the worst one I had because, um, as that partnership went farther and farther, I kind of realized he had really bad beliefs about money uh, and about selling that held us, like he did not want to, he thought having upsells on an offer was like scammy and we can't be doing that. And he thought that selling other products to customers once they were on our email list wasn't appropriate because they already have had all the stuff they needed in the original product. Like, Stuff like that, you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to overcome, um, because I mean, if, if he has a fundamental belief that selling more products or putting upsells on the offer is bad, like that, that's a essential part of growing a direct response business. Um, so I mean, yeah, a, a couple things 
to touch on really, like I said, really how well you get along, how well you guys can give and take. Uh, another thing I've noticed, uh, so Stefan George is my partner now with Copy Accelerator. We actually have a really interesting dynamic because I am much more pessimistic about things and Stefan is very optimistic and it actually works very, very well because Stefan will see the good in everything. And I kind of, I kind of see the exact opposite. And I'm like, here's the nine ways it, it, it could go wrong. And it's actually very eye-opening for both of us. Cause like he'll bring up something and I'll be like, well, here's what about this, this, and this. And he's like, Oh, I didn't even think of that. And he'll bring up, I'll bring up something. And he's like, yeah, but last time it made this amount of sales. I think this time it'll make this, this, and this. And we, we look, we just look at things completely differently. And I, I kind of look at it now as like, I kind of play defense and Stefan kind of plays offense with the business uh, where he's always come up with bigger ideas to push the things forward. And I'm kind of the more um, Mr. Mr. Gloom of kind of, all right, here's the, like I said, the four or five things that could go wrong with this. Let's, let's address these and, and try to figure it out and add that in. So you mentioned uh, the bad money mindset that your first partner had. And I, I think I know enough about you to know that you've gone through sort of a transformation when it comes to money mindset yourself. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this, <laughs> this has been a lot of work for me. Um, so I grew up in a pretty blue collar middle-class family uh, in Ohio. I grew up in a little town called Sandusky that's like right outside Cleveland where pretty much a farm town blue collar like my dad worked in a factory that makes like rubber conveyor belting my mom was like a waitress and a preschool teacher for most of my upbringing um so by the time i was like i don't know 17 18 like i had real ingrained beliefs that rich people are assholes uh that money makes you a bad person i had beliefs that like selling was scammy um I mean, all the, all the kind of terrible things that hold you back making more money. I remember, I remember when I graduated high school thinking if I could make $50,000, I would be absolutely set. Like I thought that was so much money because in my like little town, if you made $50,000, like you were doing really damn well. Um, and then I kind of got out in the real world and around more successful people and kind of realized that actually wasn't reality one bit. Um, and a lot of this, like I said, a lot of the beliefs that my parents had about money, um, really changed when I started hanging around people with money. So like the thought that rich people are assholes, uh, that changed very quick for me when I was around a bunch of internet marketers and stuff like that, who were making really good money. And I realized they were actually way cooler and way more generous than the majority of people that I grew up with, who were the ones calling them the assholes. Um, so kind of just being immersed in that environment, uh, definitely changed a lot for me. And then I, I did a lot of work on it too. Like, uh, Dan Kennedy's book, wealth attraction for entrepreneurs was a huge, huge help to me. Um, he kind of got me out of a lot of the mindsets about selling and, um, making too much money kind of like taking more than your fair share of the pie, like things like that, that, that really do hold you back because, uh, it's kind of like driving around with the emergency brake on your car. Uh, no matter what you're doing correctly, business-wise, uh, or let's say like putting out offers and stuff like that, you can't really get the full function of it because you're always sabotaging yourself in all these kind of like sneaky ways. It's it's pretty it's pretty hard to see unless you're aware of it. Uh, but once you're aware of it, it's 
it's kind of eye-opening to see how see how often you're really like screwing yourself over. I have lots of questions about money mindset and money. What surprises you the most today about having money, having worked on your money mindset, being in this different mental space and, and even spending time with people who are at a similar place, who are making good money? Have you been surprised by anything other than what you shared already that a lot of these entrepreneurs you're hanging out with are actually really good people and generous. Um, what else has surprised you as you've reached this different milestone in your business? Probably the, the most interesting thing for me is that your new reality changes very quickly. So like when I was starting, I remember the first time I, I hit six figures thinking that was such a huge deal. I mean, I was making twice the amount of money of my parents um, and I just couldn't believe it. Um, now, like, I, I make a lot more than that. Like if I if I made a hundred thousand dollars now, my <laughs> instead of being elated, I'd be I'd be pretty pissed off. Um, so I mean, you, your your regards for what's normal uh, changes very quickly. Uh, the other thing that's really different to me now is just how much more comfortable I am with money now. Whereas I, I was just a lot more like tight with it before, where um, always like worried about it, always thinking about it. Like when you're kind of scraping by and like struggling to make ends meet every month, money is the most important thing in the world. Cause like you get a flat tire when you're broke, it could literally like ruin your whole month and you're not gonna be able to pay for it. And then you're not gonna be able to drive anywhere. And it's this huge deal. I get a flat tire now. It's yeah, it's an inconvenience, but like the tow truck guy comes and fixes it and I pay him and that's that. Um, but when you're literally like, living by survival mechanisms on the money you make, uh, it definitely changes things. So once you do start to have a little more kind of room to breathe, uh, you definitely just get a lot, a lot more loose about it. And you're not so tight and not so worried about it, which actually helps more money come to you. Um, that's one thing I realized before is that I was actually a really bad receiver of money. And I've noticed this with a lot of people who are make a lot of money and they're actually they're really good receivers of money so i would just do little things to kind of sabotage people giving me money so like i'll give you a good example like oh man this is probably seven years ago i had a roommate where she got behind on like paying her rent and i was just paying it for her and then i remember basically it got to the point where she owed like seven thousand dollars and she didn't make very much money and um i remember her trying to like pay it to me and I was actually making pretty decent money at the time. And I kind of was just like, eh, whatever. Like I felt actually felt bad about taking the money from her, even though she owed her share of the rent. And even though that would have been perfectly normal for me to take the money, um, I, I was a really bad receiver of money at the time. And like a lot of that comes down to self-worth and all kinds of issues that dig pretty deep. Uh, but being a, be, just being a good receiver of money uh, and being open to receiving money when someone wants to give it to you uh, is one of the things that has really changed for me that that's made a big difference. Okay. So for the copywriter who's listening to this conversation and, you know, is, it thinks running a million dollar company sounds impossible and they, they think you're a unicorn and this could never happen to them. What advice would you give them outside of, I mean, you've shared some advice, like getting that book, the Dan Kennedy book, Wealth Attraction for Entrepreneurs. Um, being a better receiver of money, but what else would you say to them or suggest to them? 
Well, I mean, everybody, everybody starts somewhere and you have to be okay with just getting started. Uh, so, I mean, one of the biggest mistakes, let's say you're going from a copywriter to you want to create your own offers or you want to create your own business. One of the biggest problems you see is people just taking way too long in the kind of learning, studying, getting started phase. They'll do that for like two years. And then they're like, okay, now I have enough information to know how to do this. Uh, and the reality is you could, you could read all the books and buy all the courses you want about how to create an offer or start a business. But the thing that's really going to teach you the most is actually creating your sales page and running ads to it and just seeing how it does. Um, because that, that's really where you learn the most. Uh, I, I, have, I have a couple of friends right now that are doing this who he asked me for some, some feedback on kind of getting his offer going and what I thought he should do. And I literally was just like, nothing else matters right now, except get your offer up and get it tested. And we'll just see from there. Then we'll start tweaking and, and see if we can get it dialed in. Uh, it might not, it, it might not work. It might fail. And maybe go back to the drawing board with a different copy or a different product or whatever. But if you just constantly are in the information gathering mode thinking like, I'm not ready yet, or I'll start once I have this knowledge or I'll start once I have this amount of money. Um, that, that's kind of the bad spot to be in because it just, it's really just straight procrastination is really what it is. Uh, cause you're afraid to make mistakes. You're afraid to kind of put stuff out there and see how it does, uh, which I can totally relate to. I mean, I, I have the same, the same issues on stuff, not as bad as I used to, but, um, I do have to remind myself like, it's all about just getting it out there, getting it tested, and let's see what the data says, and then knowing kind of assess from there. While we're talking about money, Justin, maybe we can talk a little bit about pricing or how copywriters can, you know, raise their prices. Um, I know you work with a lot of copywriters who probably are chronically undercharge for what they do. We see this all the time in our group as well. Like, what's your best advice for copywriters who want to raise their prices but maybe aren't quite sure how to go about it? <laughs> this could be a three-day. Uh, yeah, we could live we could do a, a workshop about this whole thing, right? <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it kind of ties back to what we were, we were just talking about. With so you you can tell someone to just simply raise their prices, but you guys know this as well as I do. There's a lot more under that that's at work. There's all kinds of self-worth and feeling defective and feeling like I don't deserve this. Um, all kinds of stuff like that, that really prevents copywriters from doing it. Um, the, the one thing I've seen though, that really does help people uh, get over that is really being around other copywriters who are doing it. So if you're just starting out and you're charging, I don't know, $500 for a sales page, when you start hanging around people that charge $5,000, $10,000, $25,000, it truly does change what you think is possible. And you start to see how much you're really uh, underpricing yourself. So to me, it's wherever you can find that group, whether it's a Facebook group, whether it's at an event, whatever it is, uh, seeing the real world examples over and over uh, of copywriters who are actually charging what they're worth Um I think is one of the best things you can do. Uh, we see it all the time. Like at our last Copy Accelerator event in Vegas that, that you guys were at, there was, there was a couple of newer copywriters there who who mentioned that to me where they said their minds were just like shattered about what was possible with copywriting because they thought 
maybe I could make like three grand a month or four grand a month doing this. And then they talk to multiple people there that are making 20 grand a month, 30 grand a month. And they said just what they thought was possible with copywriting. It was just absolutely blown away. Um, but, that, but that's really the power of kind of being immersed in that and being around the people that are actually doing it at the level uh, that you want to do it at. So, yeah, while we're talking about getting around other people, I know that you're uh, a big believer in masterminds. You guys, you and Stefan have your own mastermind. We, you and I met at Brian Kurtz's mastermind. Aside from just being exposed to you know, what other people are doing, why do you continue to invest in masterminds and even run your own? So mine's usually multiple things. A, it's connections. B, it's learning new kind of tactical things. Uh, and then see, it really is kind of the mindset type stuff where, um, I remember the first time I was around, um, there's a guy, Jeff Siegel, who runs a program. It was called the diet solution back in the day. I don't know what they call it now. Uh, I remember going to the first, one of the first like traffic and conversion summits in which it was in Austin back in the day. And I met Jeff and this was at a time where I think I was maybe, I don't know, maybe making like 30, 40 grand a year as a copywriter or something like that. And I met Jeff and they were running the diet solution program. I remember him mentioning something about they were doing like $20,000 a day in sales. And my mind was just like absolutely shattered. I, I could not believe it. Um, and now I like look back and I'm like, oh, when Patriot Health Alliance was like kicking full steam, we were doing like $75,000 and it just kind of like blew past this 20,000 that I thought was so insane. So, I mean, yeah, that's probably the big thing I would say being around the people that, that push, um, I'm at a spot too, with a lot of my businesses where literally I could be at a mastermind, I don't know, two or three times a year. And if I just get one idea out of it, uh, it makes it worth it for the, for the whole year. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of, learning from people that are smarter than me, learning from people that are smarter than me in like very niche disciplines. Like I'm really good at copying and putting offers together on cold traffic and I'm good at email. I'm terrible at webinars. I'm not terrible at webinars, but I know nothing about webinars. Uh, so getting to learn from someone about webinars is, is like a huge perk for me. Uh, so yeah, for me, it's really just this constant learning because if you ever get to the point where you kind of think you know everything, uh, that's actually really a bad spot to be in because you're either you're either being naive or you're just really kind of being closed off to the fact that uh, you could still be learning more. We've talked a lot about offers and the hook and your offer that turned into your your business. So do you feel like copywriters should consider creating their own offers? Do you feel like that's a good path for you know, half of copywriters or all copywriters to consider that maybe a lot of us aren't considering right now? Yeah. So I, I think it really depends on the copywriter. So I tend to put copywriters in two categories. There's a lot of copywriters I know who are just very happy and content, simply writing copy uh, for clients. They're not entrepreneurs at heart. They really have no interest in running a business. Um, and then all the, they're, they're happy if they can make whatever, 100 grand a year, 200 grand a year, 300 grand, whatever it is, writing copy, uh, working with clients, kind of choosing their own hours. Uh, and they're perfectly happy with that. Uh, other copywriters are kind of on the other spectrum, which I, I would consider myself one of those, like Stefan's one of those where we're more entrepreneurial at heart. So 
like I'm sure the person who hired Stefan back in 2014 and he's just like cranking out winning copy after winning copy probably saw very quickly that like this is not a guy who I'm gonna be able to like hold on to for four years and have him keep writing copy for me he's he's going to leave at some point um and I, I think a lot of copywriters who are like that uh who are just very entrepreneurial at heart um you're, you're just not gonna be happy writing copy for for someone else for your for the rest of your life at some point you're gonna be like okay i, I want to put out my own offer i want to see if i can do my own thing uh and if you're that type of person 100 you should definitely try it even if it's on a like i said a super small scale where you just put something up on click funnels and you get your upsells up and you create the product and you just test i don't know 300 bucks of traffic on facebook um i, I think the entrepreneurial driven copywriter is if, if they don't get to scratch that itch, uh, they're going to be pretty disappointed. We're going to break in one more time to share a couple of more thoughts. And one of the things that really sticks out to me here is this idea of creating your own offers. It's something that Kira and I have done in the Copywriter Club. And it's something that I think that more copywriters need to have on their radars. And when I say this, you know, one of the things that we see a lot of copywriters doing is um, with their products is they think, okay, I'm a copywriter. I'm going to take my copywriter things and sell to other copywriters. And that is certainly a viable business. We obviously do that with the copywriter club, but one place where I see more people succeeding is when they take that copywriting knowledge and they apply it into a niche. So for instance, um, Adam Benzman, who was on the podcast, uh, I can't remember the number now, so we'll have to look it up, but um, he has a product that he's created that sells email templates to uh, people in the roofing industry. And he makes a lot of money doing that. And it's to an audience that he's not competing with a lot of other copywriters in that space. And a lot of roofers aren't thinking, oh, I'm going to sell my copywriting templates to you know my competition here. So it's a way where you can take your knowledge and apply it in a niche and be almost competition free. And so you know, if you're listening to this and thinking, okay, I'm going to come up with my own product. I would challenge you to think, okay, what can you do with the knowledge that you have, with the templates that you have, with the experience that you have, and what can you build to apply that into a niche that's maybe outside of this small marketing copywriting space that allows you to really own the space and have you know an offer that nobody else is going to be competing with? I think what really resonated maybe even the most for me in the interview was talking about hearing Justin talk about partnerships and probably resonated because you and I are in a business partnership. So I paid, I paid close attention and had lots of questions for Justin in that section. But I do think that um, Justin's level of humility and sharing what his strengths are and even just like flat out telling us, you know, I'm really, I know I'm good at sales, but I'm not great at running a business. And I think the important thing for any type of partnership, whether it's like 50-50 in a business or it's um, co-hosting a podcast or it's running a webinar together, whatever you can do in that collaboration and partnership with another uh, business person, it's important to have that humility to know what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are. And so I think it just kind of goes back to how important that is um, in business to not be afraid of your weaknesses. And I think that's just really important <laughs> for our humanity. And then also in business to have that level of awareness. And clearly it's paid off for Justin with um, a couple of the partnerships he talked about and his current partnership with Stefan that is really solid and um, 
financially rewarding and rewarding in multiple ways, but it started with that awareness of like, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. Here's what I'll tolerate. Here's what I won't tolerate. And so for anyone listening who's interested in a partnership, it might be definitely worth running through that and having that awareness before you start that conversation with anybody. Yeah. When he talked about the offense defense um, frame for a partnership, that makes a lot of sense because if you are able to partner up with somebody who, you know, can do the things that you're not good at, um, you know, who can watch the bottom line if you're a spender or who can, uh, you know, think more creatively if you are more into operations and, and execution or, you know, however those things need to line up, it can be really helpful. You don't want somebody who's a mirror image of yourself, even though that might be, you know, a fun person to sit around with and talk to, it's maybe not the best person to go into business with. Right. And then he talked about um, an optimist versus a, a pessimist in a partnership. And I was trying to think through, I was like, I wonder between the two of us, who is the optimist and who is the pessimist? Um, I, I think I know. I think, I mean, I would, I think I'm a, I think I'm an optimist, but um, I also think you're pretty optimistic and forward thinking. So maybe we don't have uh, enough pessimism in our business. <laughs> we need to bring on a third, third partner. Okay. So before we jump right back into the interview, let's just wrap up and talk about the two types of copywriters that Justin shared with us. It's something that we haven't talked about in depth on the podcast. And, um, you know, this might not be the right wording, but the first category are copywriters who are really happy to write copy for their clients and to grow the services side of their business and, you know, maybe hit six figures, maybe grow to a couple hundred K um, and run a business and provide that copy for their clients. And, and that's great. And then there's this other category of copywriters who have more of the entrepreneurial itch and yes, they're writing copy for clients and it's part of what they do, but they're also really excited about creating other products and um, scaling their business and um, building, tapping more into that entrepreneurial spirit that they have. And so he grouped all copywriters into one category or the other, which I thought was really interesting. And part of it too is just a reminder that if you're in one category or the other, there's not a right or wrong. And I think what I've seen with a lot of copywriters in our community is it's almost like they beat themselves up because they're in one category and not the other. So um, I think part of it's just understanding that it's okay if you're on more of the entrepreneurial side to have that awareness that that will affect the type of business model that you build and the type of growth strategies and the types of um, what you're focused on and your vision. And then if you're more focused on the copywriting and providing a service for your clients and staying more lean um, and not really tapping into that entrepreneurial side of the business, like that's also okay. And it's great to think about how you can challenge and grow in that dynamic without forcing yourself to try to fit into someone else's business model. And so I think he just said it really elegantly and, um, and we can all just kind of, again, just have that awareness of what maybe where we fit in and that it's okay and that it could actually help us figure out how best to grow based on that knowledge. Yeah, I think it's smart to think about those two categories. Although I have to say, I have a really hard time fitting myself into one or the other because I really like the idea of helping other people grow their businesses. I like solving those those creative challenges and the marketing strategy side. And at the same time, I want to build my own business in some ways. I, I remember Sam Woods, our friend, uh, tell us one time um, that he thinks of himself as being 
entrepreneurial, but not necessarily an entrepreneur, um, not necessarily wanting to take on all of the risks of starting, you know, a business or whatever, but that he thinks as a business starter would think, you know, when it comes to marketing and strategy. And I kind of think of myself the same way. Um, and so even though I know that there's these two groups, I kind of want to fit into both. I want to sort of stand between them and have a foot in each camp. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely like we can, there's a lot of gray area in there. And I think just understanding those two, maybe it's a spectrum, right? And understanding maybe where you are on that spectrum of where, how far you lean into the entrepreneurial sp space, because there definitely are extremes there. Um, I think what we're doing with the Copywriter Club and then also growing our own copywriting businesses and having those services um, probably is somewhere in the middle too. Um, but I know there were times where I felt like, oh, it, you know, if I'm building my own business with the copywriter club, then I'm not copywriter enough because I don't have, um, you know, dozens of copywriting clients. And it's just not the case. It just depends on where you are in your, in your business journey and what you're focused on uh, at the time. Okay, let's go back and wrap up the interview, starting with a question about how Justin keeps people so engaged with email. You know, we had uh, Stefan on the podcast a couple of months ago, and uh, I asked him a similar question because you two do something very similar with your email list, and that is uh, you can't just join your list. You've got to actually apply and be accepted. Will you talk a little bit about why you do that and what that's allowed you to do in your business? Sure. Uh, by the way, Stefan stole that from me. <laughs> I was wondering uh, who, who did it first. I think it's a fantastic idea, but uh, yeah, I didn't know who, who originated it. Yeah, so it honestly didn't even start as like a marketing angle. Um, it started as, so basically after I sold my company in 2017, I, I took about a year off. I did not do anything. I didn't work. I just basically traveled and um, kind of decompressed and got out of my workaholic mode, which was really nice. And then sometime in early 2018, um, I had always kind of wanted to write about marketing and copy because I'm, I'm such a like, copy nerd and marketing nerd. And I was going to start writing a blog about it. And I was like, eh, nobody really kind of like reads blogs anymore. Uh, so I kind of, I emailed probably a hundred to 150 of my friends who are all offer owners and copywriters and stuff. And I was like, Hey, I think I'm gonna start an email list and I'm gonna talk about marketing and copy every single day. Um, if you want to be on the list, um, just reply yes to this. I'll put you on it. So I sent that out, um, pretty much everyone I, literally, I think everyone i sent it to said yeah they wanted to be on the list so the email list started super small like i said i think it was 150 people when i started and then like everything i would write like a lot of people if they were like the business owner they'd be forwarded on to like their copywriters and some of their media buyers and stuff like that and then a lot of those people would start responding to the emails they'd be like hey how can i join this list and i honestly had no way to join it um and then i decided i was like well why don't i make it a little more exclusive because I actually want to interact with people on the email list. Uh, so like if people respond to stuff, I actually respond back. And the only way I saw being able to do that though, was if I actually filtered who's on the list. Cause I'm like, I don't want to spend a bunch of time, uh, responding to people who don't really understand this and who have no clue about marketing and copy and who aren't going to take it seriously. So yeah, that was kind of the idea behind it. It was literally just a, a way to get people on the list who I actually want on the list. And I'm kind of a big fan of that, having a small but loyal following, um, especially in a space like ours where 
you can do high ticket stuff. Like you don't need an email list of a hundred thousand people. Like my, my email list is literally 2000 people, which is pretty damn small. Um, but it's also 2000 people that I don't know, maybe 75% of them are the exact target market. I want to be talking to. It's like high end direct response, business owners. It's good freelance copywriters. Like that's exactly who I want to talk to. And uh, if I can have a list of 2000 people that are the exact people I want to talk to, I mean, that's, that's way better than having a hundred thousand kind of random leads. Okay. I want to ask you about Tinder because I saw on your website that you've learned marketing lessons from Tinder and it caught my attention. So can you talk to us about that? Yeah. I wrote an email to my list about this with, so my buddy, Joe, who's a little younger than me, was telling me he was going on all these Tinder dates during the quarantine. Um, I remember being kind of shocked. I was like, surprised. I was like, people are actually still doing that. I just kind of assumed like Tinder, Tinder would take like a back seat. And he's like, I don't know. And, um, I asked him, I was like, so are you, do you have to like message them and kind of like, kind of like prepare them for the, I'm assuming you have to address the elephant in the room that we're not really supposed to be like going anywhere. And he's like, no, that hasn't like come up at all. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I was like, well, how many of these you've gone on? He's like, I don't know, four or five. I was like, that's never come up. He's like, no, there's, He's like, just kind of like it was before the whole quarantine. He's like, uh, I'll pick them up or they'll come over or whatever. And I remember just being shocked. And then uh, and I wrote in my email, I was like, well, this is kind of a good reminder that kind of goes on in marketing that what you think and what your customer thinks are not always the same. Because um, from my perspective, I would have been, like, I, I'd, there's no way in hell I would have been going over to somebody's house like a month ago, uh, especially some random person I didn't even know. Uh, yet it was happening left and right, uh, according to Joe. So yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a really good example of the great marketing lesson that you are not your customer. And just because you would act a certain way, doesn't mean that everybody else is going to act that way. Uh, Dustin, can you talk to us about where you spend most of your time today? Because you've mentioned the accelerator with Stefan and then your business that you've sold. So that's out of the picture, maybe. And then, um, your copywriting work, how do you, how do you do it all? And what is, what does a typical day look like as much as you can have a typical day? Sure. So my morning is probably my most productive, not probably it is my most productive time. And it's kind of the time I, I guard, like, I don't know, like a Rottweiler, um, basically from about seven 30 in the morning till about 10 AM, I write my email to my list, which is my most important thing I can do each day. And then I'll do one other big task, which is either writing copy or something with lead gen or basically something around one of those two things. Um, like I said, I, I really, I guard that time because I've realized from experience from just trial and error that that's my most productive time. I know I'm really bad actually in the afternoon. So anywhere from like, noon till three in the afternoon is actually when I usually do, uh, I'll do calls. I'll do podcasts like this. I'll do, uh, go run errands. I'll go to the park. I'll work out stuff like that. Um, I'm just, I've realized my, my focus in the afternoon is not as good. So I try to get about 80% of the big kind of needle mover things, uh, that I have to do for the day, get, try to get those done in the morning. Uh, but yeah, most of my stuff right now is very copy accelerator focused. 
Uh, I have a couple of new products um, coming out later this year that I can't quite reveal yet, but um, those are in the works. But yeah, I mean, really, it's it's a focus on Cup Accelerator, helping our members, um, and then really just trying to move the needle forward on on growing my list and kind of getting my name and my brand out there. Yeah, speaking of getting your name or brand out there, uh, when I met you in person, I noticed uh, you were wearing a blue suit and white shirt. We saw you uh, at your event in Las Vegas, and you showed up in a blue suit and white shirt. And most people don't dress up for events these days. Uh, first of all, how many suits do you own? And second of all, why? Why do you show up in a suit uh, when you're out in public? The blue suit. Yeah, not just any suit. It's the blue suit. The blue suit. Um I probably own, I don't know, eight suits at this point, uh, three of which are blue. Um, so interestingly, this is actually really funny because everybody kind of knows me as the guy who wears suits and blazers now. Maybe, I don't know, I would say five years ago, I was probably one of the slobbiest looking people <laughs> you would have ever seen at an event. Uh, I was the dude at events who wore like the same clothes I wore to the gym. I, like, I can't imagine it. I can't believe this. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it was really, really bad. I So I basically would wear like gym shorts and I'm not even kidding, like a shirt that I'd worked out in for like six years and I would wear them to events because I was like, oh yeah, this is like what you do. You're an internet marketer. You get the freedom. You can wear whatever you want. Um, it took me a couple of years and then I remember it's probably sometime in 2000, I don't know, 16, 17, I actually kind of got into fashion and style. I actually had uh, two friends of mine. They were um, uh, fashion designers uh, when I lived in Ohio. And I remember I invited them over to kind of like go through my closet, my wardrobe and like pick out stuff for me. And they, they taught me everything about like colors and layering and how to wear clothes. And I, I like I said, I dressed terribly. And uh, all of a sudden I started dressing a lot better. But then like for the business thing, it's interesting because I, I was always... I was obviously like always younger. Like I started in this business when I was probably like 22, which it's kind of hard to get people to take you seriously when you're that young. Um, and I noticed when I started dressing better, that changed dramatically. Uh, and I also heard a story from Dan Kennedy that, that actually did the same thing for me. So basically Dan was telling this story about how when he used to speak from the stage, uh, he would actually split test his outfits uh, to see which ones would help him sell better. And one of the things he was split testing was whether he should wear a tie or whether he should not wear a tie. And he basically said after like split testing it like three times, he consistently sold like 15% less when he did not wear a tie. Um, I remember that being like a big light bulb moment for me. I'm like, wow, if tie versus no tie makes that big of a difference, like what the hell's the difference between me wearing gym shorts <laughs> versus me wearing like a suit and a blazer? Um, so that, that was one of the big things that really changed my mind on, on dressing up at events. And it's actually one of the things I tell a lot of copywriters is that one of the best ways to be taken seriously at an event uh, is by being pretty well dressed. This is not a big issue for women because women are not idiots like men and women would not show up to an event where in same shit they wear to a gym. Uh, <laughs> uh, men, men are idiots. We, we don't like think the same way. Um, but yeah, a lot of guys, I'll tell them, like, just, it's not that hard. Like, get a, get a cheap blazer, wear a t-shirt or a dress shirt under it. And like, 
you instantly, when you're talking to a business owner as the copywriter, they instantly take you way more seriously uh, than someone else there who's wearing like a t-shirt with a logo on it. Yeah. I have to dress up at events. I just don't like, I just have to, I just feel better when I'm there and like I'm dressed professionally and I match the brand and um, I don't dress like that at home, but at events, it just makes me feel more confident. So you don't wear a pink suit around the house, Kira. I, that's hard to believe. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're quite the fashionista, Kira. <laughs> the, the pink suit only comes out at special events. Uh, so my last question for you, Justin, is we've asked this before, but um, what does the future of copywriting look like to you? Ooh. Um, so, I mean, the big thing I see is copywriters moving a little more in the direction of not just being a copywriter, but also being a conversion specialist because even a lot of the like really good copywriters who kind of grew up in the direct mail era and are just great at writing copy. A lot of them really don't understand a lot of the stuff online in terms of like conversions. Uh, so they don't understand like upsells and checkout pages and how to increase the average order value and stuff like that. And that to me really is where if you're a copywriter, you can, you can not only get big wins for clients, but you can make a lot more money and really differentiate yourself from everyone else. Um, because there's, that's what provides the ROI for the client. Uh, I mean, if you can boost their average order value by 10 bucks, uh, they're going to love you. Um, and I mean, you really kind of separate yourself because like I said, a lot of copywriters can't do it. And, I, and I'm even including like a, a lot of the, really damn good copywriters. They just, what they know is copy. They know how to write a sales page. They know how to write a video sales letter, whatever, but they don't really understand all the kind of conversion stuff that goes into truly scaling an offer. And that's, that's a big area where, uh, if you kind of immerse yourself in that, you could, you can make a lot of money being able to do that for companies. There was a lot of good stuff in this episode, and we may need to do a follow-up episode just to cover what we didn't get to as far as upsells and scaling offers. That's stuff that Justin has spoken to our roundtable group about in the past, and it's one of his superpowers. And so at some point, we may have to have Justin back on to, to talk about that because a lot of copywriters don't think about scaling and upsells. So Kira, was there anything else that stood out to you from this interview with Justin? Yeah, there was. Thanks for asking, Rob. Um, one part of it was that he mentioned the most important thing that he does every day is writing to his list. And he does it in the morning because that's his best writing time. And it really grabbed me when I heard it because um, it's so easy for us as copywriters to put to get confused about what the most important thing is that we do and to oftentimes put our clients' needs ahead of our own business needs. And so what I liked about Justin just stating that, he was just so clear about this is the most important thing for me to do, therefore I prioritize it, therefore I think about my optimal creative time and I make it happen. And he does that every day, which is unbelievable that he does it every day. Um, we, <laughs> we're struggling to get emails out once a week. So um, I think, you know, that it's a mindset shift. And if that's something that, you know, you're struggling with, then it might be worth like focusing on how you can do the most important thing for your business um, during that peak time. Maybe it's not in the morning, maybe it's in the evening. Um, but just having that level of commitment that Justin has, that seems like it's quite important. 
Yeah. And it might not be email depending on, you know, what right. the thing yeah. is. Yeah. So yeah. When I hear Justin say that and like, oh, I should be emailing more, you know, we should be communicating with our list. And I suppose, you know, we've had other priorities, but it's maybe something that I need to uh, reprioritize and think, okay, what can we do to make sure that everybody who has opted into hearing from us gets really good quality information when they need it and that it's relevant to what they're doing? Yeah, and I would just say that probably most copywriters, including myself, like we don't know what that most important thing is that we should be committed to every day. And it may change and it's just not clear. So um, I need to give that some more thought too. And I love that we were able to talk a little bit about style and fashion and Justin's blue suit. I'm glad we squeezed that into the conversation because that is also relevant. And I just loved that he opened up about it and was able to talk about um, the impact <laughs> dressing for the occasion and dressing up um, has played in his business. And um, I do think that is something that really is important, especially when you go to in-person events, that you dress for your brand to match your brand and it's intentional. And that it does play a big role in the way that people perceive you and um, it makes an impact. And Justin proved it. Now that we're in a virtual space, there are ways to also focus on that in your virtual backdrop. And I know our, um, our friend Tamara Glick has created a masterclass all about work from home because she helps different service providers create a backdrop that is professional and impressive and um, and helps actually elevate the business. And so it's interesting that now it is so focused on virtual and it's still important, whether it's um, in-person or virtual, to have that attention to detail and that it can affect your business. Yeah, it is really interesting that people get so energized about this. You know, people who want to work in their pajamas or their sweats or, you know, they don't want to have to shower till the end of the day or whatever. But um, the fact remains that, you know, if, uh, if you're meeting with clients in particular, uh, it makes a difference and it can even make a difference in your own approach to work. If you're somewhat dressed up, dressing professionally, approaching work like work and not like a hobby. And maybe we can talk about that more in a future episode as well. I think we should. Yeah, let's do it. So thanks to Justin Goff for sharing the last hour with us. If you're not on Justin's email list, you really should be. He sends out, like we've talked about, very engaging emails every single day but you've got to apply to get on his list. So go to justin123.com and fill out the application and hopefully Justin will click yes uh, when, when you hit apply. And even if you don't decide to join his list, um, the application to join an email list is just a cool marketing tactic that helps keep people engaged with him. So you might even just want to check that out as a marketing tactic and something that you can borrow for a client somewhere else. You can also find Justin at justingoff.com. That's G-O-F-F, justingoff.com. And that's the end of another show. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. You can learn more about programs like the Copywriter Underground and the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind group for copywriters who are building six-figure businesses by visiting thecopywriterclub.com. And if you haven't already, would you open up Apple Podcasts and leave a review of the show? Reviews help us get the word out and let us know that you appreciate the in-depth information our guests share every week on the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 
Club, yeah, can make you lots of money.